Hey, good morning, everybody. It is great to be back with you. I am Phil. I am the senior pastor here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited. We got some new people here today. We got some students here today, right? Some new students here today. Let's let's. I've I've, I've watched some of y'all grow up since your babies, and now you're here. This is amazing. Let's let's uh, welcome them to our church. I'm so glad you guys are here. Yeah. Keep your parents in line, some of y'all. That'd be great. All right. Uh, I'm also super happy to be back with you. I was in Mexico last week and got a chance to be in, in a couple places. So uh, I send you greetings from a new place for me, a, a, a town called Ajijic, Mexico, which is about 30 minutes south of Guadalajara, beautiful little place. And uh, there's a church there um, called Lakeside Presbyterian Church that I got to, to meet them. And they send greetings to you through me. And we're looking forward to ways we can connect with them in ministry in the future. And then I got to see a very old friend of mine and a friend of a lot of yours, uh, Manuel Gomez and his family in Morelia, Mexico, and, and the church there and the churches they planted in that area. I got to meet with them. Uh, we're really excited about opportunities we have to do ministry again in the future. So super excited about all of that, and they send greetings to you through me. So I want to pass those on uh, to you. And, and today we're going to be looking at something that connects uh, us to both of those, all those churches and, and churches around the world. We're going to be getting to look at a passage that helps us understand in a deeper way uh, one of the most important things for Christians of all, and that's what we call communion, or you can call it Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And, and this is uh, uh, something Jesus called his followers to do, to remember his death on their behalf. And, and there's two components to it. One is there's bread that represents the body of Jesus, and there's, there's wine that represents the blood of Jesus. And, uh, and these elements came from Jesus redefining parts of the Jewish Passover. So right before his crucifixion, he was having celebrating Passover with his disciples. And one of the things he did that was different is typically when you're hosting a Passover meal and you get to the bread, they would hold up the bread and say, this is the bread of our afflictions, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Okay? But on this night, instead of saying that, Jesus said, this is my body. And what he was doing was he was helping them understand that what was about to happen was his body was going to take on the affliction that was necessary for the justice of God for our sins to be paid and for us to be able to be delivered from the slavery of death into a new kind of freedom with Jesus Christ. So he did that with the bread, and then he redefined the wine as well. And with the wine, he said this uh, in Matthew 28, or 26, 28, he said, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Luke gives us a little more detail on that in Luke 22, 20, uh, where he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so within the, the, the communion elements, there's bread that represents the body of Christ and blood and wine that represents the blood of Christ. And this is significant for what we're going to be looking at because what the writer of Hebrews is going to do in Hebrews 9, 15 through 28, which we'll look at today. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and start turning there. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new, raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. And if you don't own a Bible, keep the Bible we give to you as our gift. But Hebrews 9, um, 20, 15 through 28, uh, that focuses on sort of the theological background of why blood is necessary. And then what we're going to look at next week in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 is the theological background of why the body is necessary, right? Because I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but if the death of Jesus is what makes us right with God, why are there two elements? 
Why blood shed in death and body given in death? Why, why are those two both, part, both there instead of just one thing that covers all of it? So we're going to get a chance to look into some of that over the next two weeks. And then what we're going to do at the end of next week uh, is we're going to have communion together. Okay. So today we're going to be looking at uh, more of the theological background behind why blood, sh- bloodshed and death is necessary uh, next week, why a body given willfully to die is necessary, and then we'll have communion together, right? Um, but we're going to be uh, looking at uh, a lot that has to do with blood and death over the next couple of weeks, and most of us avoid those things. Like Most of us, like, I don't want to think about death, and I don't want to look at blood, right? So we don't... I mean, if you ever grew up on a farm, you know that the way we get our food is radically different than the way it's made. Uh, and so like we're, we avoid those kind of things, but the Bible doesn't. And I, I want to help us kind of understand the Bible's perspective on both blood and, and death. And, um, and so you just have a, a way to orient yourself to what's going on. So uh, when, when there's blood shed in the death of a sacrifice, that's making a really, really important statement that whatever this is shed for is more important than life itself. Okay, so, so the blood is, is an indicator of the sacredness and the importance of what the blood is shed for. Right? The closest we will get to this, probably in our culture, are people in the military and first responders who know that part of what their role involves is they may lay down their life for something they see as more important than life itself. Okay, so that, that's, that's a, about as close as we come in our culture. There's a sacred element to this that's even weightier for the people that first read this. And then uh, the other thing you need to know when it comes to death is that for Christians, death is not something that we fear. For people who are right with God, death doesn't take away, death gives, all right? So, so if you are in a right relationship with God, all death can ever do is bring greater life to you. Okay? What you, you will die to something that is not life-giving, and something will be resurrected in its place that is life-giving. That's what we see throughout the Bible. We see throughout the Bible, Christians called to enter into the death of Jesus, to die to themselves, to die to the things of this world, to die in ways that uh, will produce greater life than anything this world can give. And then when we ultimately physically die, we know that we will be brought into the presence of Jesus. And yesterday we got a chance to have a memorial service for our, our good friend Bill Mackey who went to be with Jesus. And I had the, the privilege because he had a relationship with Jesus to be able to say, because Bill had given his life to Jesus and received Jesus's life in return, death did not take life from Bill. Death brought Bill into greater life. And that's true for, for everybody who has a right relationship with God. And so um, death is not something that we fear in that way. Death is something that opens up life for us. And so those are some perspective to have as we look at these um, two aspects of, of blood and, and a body given up in death over the next two weeks. And so as you look at this theological kind of deep dive on the blood of Jesus, the writer starts by connecting to what Chris did a good job talking about last week. So let's look at verse 15. He says, therefore, he is the mediator, that's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since so a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, so the therefore he's pointing back to is 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 what we looked at in the prior verses, where it talks about the reason that the the sacrifice of Jesus is greater than any other sacrifice is because the sacrifice of Jesus can get to the very core of who we are and purify us from the inside out. 
All right? The other sacrifices could cover sin for a while, but the sacrifice of Jesus like, deals with sin at every level from the deepest part of us that we can't even think about to, to, to the, the external parts of us. So it's able to, to cleanse at, at every level. And, and then um, one of the things that the author of doing here, one of the points he's making here in this passage is that the sacrifice of Jesus did so much more than the sacrifices of the Old Testament era because those sacrifices only dealt with people living at the time the sacrifice was made, right? So, so uh, they, would, they would have a, a yearly, annual, or sometimes more often than that, sacrifices made that just covered the people living at that time. But that's a huge problem, right? Because if, if the, those sacrifices don't actually deal with sin, they just kind of cover it, and they only just kind of cover it for the people of the time, what was happening is from, the, from the, when sin first entered the world is sacrifice, sin would happen, sacrifice would cover it, not deal with it. Sin kind of continues to happen, builds up, sacrifices keep covering it, but, but it, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system only just kind of kicked the can down the road. And Abner actually dealt with the problem. And so it just as elevates the problem of sin and the problem of our brokenness just escalates over and over and over and over and over again until it just gets huge and massive. And it's this massive problem that, that seems impossible to solve until Jesus showed up, okay? And the thing that I love about this, Jesus' ability to come and to deal with all sin for all people for all time is this. If Jesus' sacrifice can do that, Jesus can solve the greatest problem you have and the greatest problem I have. And Jesus is the solution to the greatest problem in the world. And that's our disconnection from God. Okay? All of us have problems. Our world has problems. Things around us have problems. And if, you know, if you're trying to ask yourself the question, like, why is this problem here? Okay, The truth is, if you kind of dig down deep enough into that answer, here's what you're going to find. The foundation of every problem we have is our disconnection from God. We were made to be in a relationship with God. We've rebelled against that because we want to be God. We don't want to follow God. And, and God is too smart to follow us. And so if we say, I'm not going to follow you, he's not, you know, he's going where he's going. And we separate ourselves from God. And that separation from God and our willing independence from him, I want to do my own thing. That is the foundational of, of, of every problem that we have, every problem in the world. That is that the problem that Jesus' death came to solve. And he came to solve it for you and for me, for people who lived prior to his death, for people who will come after his death. That's how big his death was, okay? And, and, and one thing just to kind of help you amplify in your mind why this is such a big deal and why this was so significant is because one of the truths about God is God is holy and God is just and, and God is loving. But it's not loving to be unjust, all right? And so, so it would not be loving or good or just for God to say, you know what, I know, I know you sinned, and I know that sin like, did harm to you and others, but you know, I see that you're sad about that, and you know, I know you're like, well, maybe I won't do it next time. So he's like, oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just ignore that, right? You see, God in his justice cannot say, right, well, nobody's perfect, and so you're trying hard, so it's fine, right? That's not... Like, like if you've ever been affected by a really serious sin, that kind of trivial approach to it, you, you, you know how unjust that is, and you know how unloving that is. And, and so God, in his perfect justice and his love, cannot declare the innocent or the guilty innocent without that guilt being completely dealt with. We see this in a couple places in the Bible. 
Exodus 23, 7, says, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And then Isaiah, one of my favorite writers in the Bible, because he writes things like this, said, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. We're guilty. And God cannot declare the guilty innocent without their guilty being completely paid for. And the old sacrificial system could not do that. And we cannot do that. We do not have the capacity to deal with our own guilt and to deal with our own sin. And so the only way that could be dealt with was for Jesus to come to live the life we should have lived we didn't live and to live a perfect life and then before God give that perfect life up taking our place on the cross under the justice of God for our sins. So our sins could be forgiven and his perfect righteousness could be given to us as a gift. And all that coming from us acknowledging I cannot be my own savior. I need Jesus to save me and receiving his gift of salvation as a free gift of his grace and his love, and that making us right with God, which is a phenomenal thing. Because when that happens, a totally new kind of relationship, totally different kind of relationship with God based on Jesus and not based on us, a relationship that, uh, that uh, cha- changes us from the inside out, a relationship that's not based on you know, the ups and downs of our trying to be good. Jesus' perfect life has already been lived. It's already been accomplished. It can't be undone. When we put our trust in his perfect life, that trust is secure. That trust is, 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 is stable for all eternity. Not, not our, our fickle attempts to be good. Now, that's really, really good news. And, uh, and for everybody who hears that, that's really good news. Uh, if you're hearing that for the first time, I'm really glad you're getting to hear it. I'd love to talk to you more about that. A lot of us in our culture have heard something along those lines before. And so we're a little bit used to that language. But the people who first were reading this were not. And when they read this, right, they spent their life, right, trying to be good enough, you know, trying to be, to do all the, the, the right things, all the laws, and deep down knowing, you know, my heart's really not in the right place for this. They, they, then when they hear this, they're like, wait a minute, then I have this relationship with God based on the perfect life of Jesus and not me. What their first response is, this can't be true. This is too good to be true, right? And I know I've had conversations with people like, this is too easy. Like, it's, it's, it's too easy just to say, like, okay. I'm a sinner. Yeah, get that. Uh, Jesus, I need his salvation. Okay, if I go to him for it, he gives it to me as a gift. That just seems kind of light, right? The reason that's light for us is because it cost him so much, which we're going to get into a little bit later. But, but the, the author goes into this. This is how you can trust this. This is how you can know this is not too good to be true. And that's where he goes in the next verse, where he talks about the way that God made this promise to us uh, in, the, in the covenant that he's going to give Jesus' death to us as a gift to make us right with him. So verse 16 and 17 says, for where a will, that, that I'll explain this in a minute, um, that's also the word covenant, where the will or covenant is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will or covenant takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So um, Hebrews has is, is got a pretty lofty Greek and it's kind of complicated. This is one of the most complicated sentences in uh, the book of Hebrews. And so the author is 
asking the audience to connect some dots that we have a hard time figuring out how to connect. So uh, one of the easy ways to sort of get the gist of what the author is saying is with something we're familiar with, which is a will. So uh, if, if someone like wills you their moped, right, uh, at their, their death, right, you will get the moped when they die, right? That's the kind of, we know how that works, okay? Uh, and so that gives you a sense of, of what's going on. But what I think is really a better way to capture what the author is doing here is to get recognized that the word translated in this part for will, which is deatheke, everywhere else in the book of Hebrews is translated as covenant. And I think what's happening here is what the author is saying is there's a new covenant, and covenants would occur, this kind of covenant would occur through a death. So the kind of covenant God has made with us, where he says, you can be made right with me based on what Jesus has done for you, that was a covenant he made at the, at the highest level of commitment you can make a commitment. And here's, here's, here's how it works. Like, I don't know, like today when we make a commitment, Michael's a lawyer, he can tell you this, so you can ask him. I, I think you just get it notarized, right? Like that's like, like the biggest, I don't know what it is. What The biggest way to like say I'm really serious about that is you write it and somebody, I, whatever. Talk to Michael about what, if you need something bigger than that, Michael can help you with that, right? But here's, here's how that worked back in their day, right? Like if you're really, really serious about a commitment, here's what you would do. Uh, you would sacrifice an animal and then you would saw it in half. Can you imagine? Like you, you, you making the agreement saw the animal in half. I'd hate that for one, I mean, but I would remember that, right? That'd be a very vivid experience for me, right? And then after you sawed the animal in half, you put the two pieces beside each other and you walk back and forth between them as a way of saying, what has been done to these animals may be done to me if I violate the terms of this covenant. That would be a memorable thing for me. I'd hate to do it, but that would be a memorable thing for me. And, and, and what the author is saying as in the death of Jesus, God was making this kind of covenant with us. He gave it that kind of seriousness. He made that kind of statement. And so this is not, this is an amazing gift, but God did not take the giving of the gift lightly. And it's one that we can be completely secure in because of the cost that God paid to give it, okay? So, so it's this amazing gift, and it's this gift that came at a very high price, which was the blood of God, and that's what we get to here in 18 through 21, where he says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Here's what's going on here. Um, when uh, the, the, the sacrifices for the nation would be made, the holy places would be cleansed, and they would be cleansed through the sprinkling of blood. And so a sacrifice would be made, uh, a, a branch of hyssop would be dipped in that, and it was kind of just put on everything else to, 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 to acknowledge these are set apart for a holy and sacred purpose. And so that that was what was going on here. And, and we, it's hard for us to kind of like 
grasp the weightiness of that because we don't have the same view of how blood kind of functioned in a religious way that they do. So I just want to give you a little bit of an overview of kind of how blood functioned in, in sort of this religious way of, of connecting people to God. So throughout the Bible, we see a couple of things. One of them, this is the first time blood is mentioned is in Genesis 4.10 uh, when God is addressing Cain over the murder of Abel. And he says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So this is obviously a metaphor, but it is showing us there is some way in which blood shed in death continues to speak to God after the person has died. So there's this enduring ability for blood to, to, to kind of have a voice in what's going on. So that's the first one. Then the first time we see blood used as a sacrifice on behalf of someone else was in Exodus chapter 12, which is when the, the Egyptians were about, you know, they, they were, God was wanting them to leave Egypt. The, the Israelite slaves in Egypt were being called by God to go. And the Egyptians were like, nope, they can't go. And so you get all the plagues. The last of the 10 plagues that would eventually free the Israelites, to, to have an exodus from Egypt and go where God wanted them to go, uh, that was the, the curse of the death angel, where an angel was going to come and kill the firstborn son of every house who did not have a lamb killed on behalf of the family. The blood of the lamb then poured out and a, and a hyssop branch, which is a, a branch that's kind of got like a waxy leaf, you know, that those are so that nothing really sticks to it. A hyssop branch would be dipped in the blood, and then it would be that the blood would be put on the, the center post of the, the doorframe of the, of the tent, uh, and then the side posts of the doorframe would make kind of like a cross. And as you would do that with the hyssop branch, the blood would drip off of it because the leaves weren't the kind that would something would stick to, and then you would be sprinkled with blood. And so the sprinkling of blood became connected to salvation through a sacrificial death on behalf of somebody else. So, so that's the first time we see it there. Um, then in Exodus 24, a little bit later in the book of Exodus, we see uh, blood used to enter into a covenant with God. Um, and then you see a little bit later, blood used to consecrate the priests. So people who gave their lives to, to be dedicated to God, blood would be sprinkled on them. Uh, and then in cleansing and purification, uh, you see blood being sprinkled as within that. Uh, Chris mentioned last week, you're back there. Uh, you mentioned Psalm 51 last week, right? Yeah, okay. So in Psalm 51, 7, uh, there's this verse that says, Purge me with hyssop, which is that branch, right? The branch you dip in blood um, that sprinkles off on you. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so that hyssop is the way that blood is sprinkled on us as we apply it, the death of someone else on our behalf. So that also deals with cleansing and purification. And lastly, Leviticus 16 shows us that blood was used uh, to atone for sin. And, and that's where you see the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat of God and the holy places sprinkled with blood in the, on the day of atonement. And so the way that God used the blood of a sacrifice is for salvation, Covenant, consecration, 
cleansing, and atonement. All of that comes with this word for blood and the way it's used in this way. And so what the, the animal sacrifices had done partially for this, that the final and perfect sacrifice of Jesus did fully for this. So those who put their faith in the final perfect sacrifice of Jesus are the full recipients of salvation, the new covenant, consecration, cleansing, and atonement, right? And so, so all, all, the, all of that was happening with Jesus in the shedding of his blood and the way that blood was used to purify the places of God. And so, um, and this is what was required by God. This whole idea, the blood is necessary for these things to happen, is something that God came up with. And so in 9.22, we see that indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, okay? So, so there are some parts of the Old Testament law where you can make a sacrifice that didn't involve blood. You could give flour. Uh, but there was one sacrifice that covered the whole nation and all of the deficiencies of the other sacrifice, and that was on Yom Kippur. That was for the nation. And that was required because God said it was. Somewhere in the economy of God, the justice of God, the way that God understands things at a level that's far deeper than we do, he has said, for my justice to be satisfied, for rebellion against me, blood has to be shed in that process. And, and, and Jesus understood that. But one thing that's important for us to remember about God when it comes to God's justice is, is what's true really for everybody is the guilty person is typically not the person who gets to say, I think justice should look like this, right? Like we know this, right? Like if, you, if you've just been to 7-Eleven and you got nachos and a Slurpee and you go back into your car and you're driving your car and you drip whatever the nacho cheese stuff really is on you, right? And then you've got your chip and you're looking down and you're trying to scrape it off of you, right? And then you hit another car and you total their car and you dent your car, but you spill your nachos and your Slurpee, okay? You are not then at that point able to say to the driver of the car you just totaled, you know what? My car's dented, and I just lost my nachos and Slurpee. I think we're even, right? You're not allowed. You can't. You can't. You're not the one who gets to do that, right? There's a whole set of laws, insurance companies, and angry parents that get involved in that whole thing to, to have another level of justice sort of exercise, right? You don't get to be the one that decides what it is. Same is true for us. Like, we don't get to say to God and say, I think... My bright smile should make up for whatever. That's not what it doesn't, you don't get to do that. God is the one who decides what justice is. And the thing about that that's really important, we're going to look at it in just a minute, is, is God knew how serious, how costly our sin is. Jesus knew that before he showed up and chose to come anyway, okay? We're going to get back to that in just a minute. But the author then goes and, and he talks about the fact that, that Jesus cleansed something greater than the temple or the tabernacle at the time. He cleansed heaven itself. And we'll get into that here in the next couple of verses. He says 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Okay, so that's either the temple or tabernacle at the time purified with the blood off the hyssop branch. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, which is the death of Jesus. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. So as, as the copies, which is the tabernacle and temple, they're cleansed by the blood of an animal sacrifice, heaven itself is cleansed by, by Jesus in this way. And here's how that works. Um, the way that the, the presence, the pure presence of God is 
kept pure is by not allowing anything unpure into his presence. Okay, that's how the holiness of God works. And so what Jesus has done to maintain the purity of the presence of God while at the same time allowing us to enter the presence of God is Jesus had to purify us at every level. So that's what this is talking about. Uh, it's talking about making sure nothing impure gets into the presence of God. We have a very, you know, kind of uh, a very small glimpse of this in the way we'll take our shoes off when we enter somebody else's house sometimes, right? And that is basically saying, I'm not going to let what was impure that I walked over come into your house, yeah? And so, so it's, it's a little, that's a little glimpse of what that is. Jesus in his death purifies us from sin, which allows us to move into the presence of God and keeps the presence of God pure. But there's another thing, that's his main point. But there's another thing I think is fascinating about this, which is a side point that I just think is really amazing, that he talks about the, the, either the tabernacle or the temple at the time being a copy of something in heaven. Notice that? This is wild to me because what it shows me, what it shows us, is there is a moral and ethical and, and, and religious system where we relate to God that was not built from man up, but came from God down. This is huge to me. Like, like everything else, in terms of just sort of our religious system, is, is, is humans trying to figure out, how do I kind of work my way up to God? But what God has given us in his word through his revelation is something that reflects what is reality in heaven, an eternal reality in heaven. So, so God is revealing something to us that we get to live into on earth that reflects what is eternally going on in heaven. So top down in terms of morality and ethics and relationship with God. And I think this is just enormous because I think if you have it the other way, if it is, okay, well, if it's a human construct of people trying to get to God and you look at the, the thing and you're like, well, this was written a long time ago by people in a very different context. Maybe it ought to be updated. I, I can get that argument if you believe this is all a human construct anyway. But if it's not, if it's not a human, if, if there is a way to know morality, ethics, and a relationship with God that reflects what is eternal and unchanging in heaven, coming from heaven down to us through revelation, then it should never change because God never changes. And so, so while, while Jesus fulfilled some of the aspects of the Old Testament, he also said there's lots of these things that move forward for you. As we obey what the Bible tells us, what we're doing is we're living into a heavenly reality. The Bible calls it we're living as citizens of heaven rather than citizens of the earth. And we're living out an ethical and moral and religious way of life that matches what's eternally going on in heaven. I think that's just fantastic. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about it because I'll talk forever about it. But if you're interested in this kind of idea, um, C.S. Lewis is a great place to start. And he has this great book called The Abolition of Man where he does this. He not only talks about how valuable it is to have this religious, moral, and ethical uh, reality revealed to us from heaven down, he also talks about how joy works and how joy does not work from us trying to build our way up to joy. Joy works from God bringing it down to us and us entering into it through the word of God. So that's a fantastic book. If you've never read it, go ahead and read that. So but let me get back to the main point. So the main point the author is making is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us and enables us to move into the presence of a holy God, okay? And so Jesus' sacrifice was a far greater sacrifice than anything that cleansed temporarily. He cleansed us permanently in this way, and that's what we see next. 
text. Uh, verses 25 and 26 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I just love that. Jesus put away sin. The sacrifice of himself put away sin. He completed, he finished what was necessary for us to be made right with God. He removed sin all the the way in us and all the way back to the foundation of the world and in a way that can remove sin for those who trust him all the way until Jesus returns. That's how big this was. And when it talks about the end of the ages, he put away sin at the end of the ages. This is really this fantastic thing that says when Jesus died, something, something huge changed. When Jesus died, all of the ages of the earth, when sin dominated the earth, that stopped. And something else came into the earth that was stronger than sin and death. Something else came into the earth that was more powerful than sin. That had not happened before. The Holy Spirit comes now, and the Holy Spirit empowers us. God himself lives within us. Jesus has broken the power and the dominion of sin. The Holy Spirit has entered our lives, and we have the opportunity to live lives free from sin into what God wants and not controlled by our self-centeredness that keeps wrecking our lives. That's really, really good news. And so at the end of the, so Jesus ushers in this new thing that is, is amazing. So when he said it's finished, on the cross when he dies, His last words from the cross are, it is finished. What that meant was our relationship with God based on the life of Jesus that breaks the dominion of sin and brings new life to us, that has all been settled and decided and certain and complete and is incontestable for all eternity. And this very, 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 very good news. And it is a way for you and I to be secure in the love that God has for us. Because if you put the pieces of this together, what you see is God knows you're guilty. You know you're guilty, and God knows you're guilty. God knew the price to resolve your guilt. Jesus knew that before he came to earth. Jesus, out of love for God the Father and for you, chose to come and pay that price for you. And for those of us who receive the gift of his love, nothing's going to take that away. Nothing's going to take that away from us. And and, and, and that's, that's such a wonderful thing. Because that gift is so wonderful, though, to reject that gift is so tragic. And it really is. So if, if you haven't, like, if you're on the fence about Jesus, if you're like, I don't know what I need to do with him, if you have not yet acknowledged the brokenness, honestly, just acknowledge the brokenness of your own sin, your inability to do anything about that, and go to Jesus and say, you're my only hope to make me right with God. If you've not yet done that, if your life ends and you haven't done that, that'll be the greatest tragedy of all because you will have missed the one and only way we can be made right with God. And that is what we see in verse 27. The writer of Hebrews says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Um, This is a short little verse, and it's the first part of a sentence, but there's really important things in here I don't want us to miss. And one of them is this, everyone will die. Everyone will die. Uh, I know that there is a growing hope in our culture today that technology will someday enable us to defeat death. It's called transhumanism. Uh, That's wrong. That will never work. So don't put your money in that direction. It's not going to go. Don't put your hope in that direction. So everybody dies, and everybody dies once. 
So the assumption that we are trapped in a cycle of rebirth after rebirth after rebirth after rebirth after rebirth until maybe someday we happen to get it right, that's also wrong. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful we're not trapped in that kind of cycle. So everyone dies, everyone dies once, and then death is not the end. I think this is probably the biggest distinction between what the Bible tells us and what so many people in our culture assume. So many people in our culture assume that death just ends it for us entirely. That's not true. We're eternal beings. And we're going to spend eternity either in the presence of God or away from the presence of God, which is why the most important question you can answer in this life is what do I do with Jesus? Do I trust him or do I reject him? That's going to be what what guides your eternity one way or the other. Um, And then the fourth thing I want you to see is that God holds people accountable. Every sinful and every evil thing that has ever been done by anyone has to be paid for. There will be punishment for every evil and every sin. And that's going to happen in one of two ways. Either the punishment for the sin and the justice for the sin will have been put on Jesus on behalf of you or you will face it entirely on your own. Either it has been completely taken away by Jesus on your behalf or you face the entirety of it before God yourself. Those are the only two options for what's going to happen with all the sins that we've done in our lives. There will be judgment and God does hold people accountable. So again, the most important thing for you to figure out in this life is what do you do with Jesus? And he invites you to give your sin to him, let him forgive it, let his blood pay the price for you, and let his righteousness bring you into a perfect relationship with God forever. Okay? And for those of us who have done that, then we look forward to Jesus coming back. One of the best things we know is that Jesus is going to return. So verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I'm one of those. I really do. I'm eagerly waiting for him, right? When, when he comes back, man, we're going we're gonna to go together. We're going to be with him forever. When, when he, because, because I have just been given the grace of God, to be honest with my own sin and my own brokenness, and some of y'all need to start there. I, I know for some people, even you have this intuitive sense of how guilty you really are, and it terrifies you. And that's one of the things that keeps you from acknowledging that to God. Listen, I, I just need you to know he knows already. He knows more about you than you know. He sees worse things in you than you know, and his love extends to you. So don't be afraid to acknowledge your sin before him and say, yeah, I'm really broken. I'm really sinful, and I can't fix me. I can't make up for what I've done to violate the infinite holiness of God. So we start there, and we go to God, what I've been able to do, and I've been able to just say to God, say to Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you to save me. You are my only hope to be made right with God. I need you to save me. And whenever you do that, Jesus' answer to that is, yes, I will. I will save you. And as simple as that was, it has changed my life. The salvation of Jesus has not only removed my sin and my guilt, Uh, The Holy Spirit has come to live within me. God has changed my heart. I love the things that God loves and and, and, and growing in that. And and the the most free person in the world is the person who loves what God loves for them. Yeah? Because, Because God is going to 
God, God offers you what he knows is best for you. God offers you what, what, what his love has for you. If you love what God loves for you, you are the freest person in the world. And the good news about God changing our hearts is our hearts grow more and more to love what God loves and to love what God loves for us and give us more and more freedom as we move into that. I absolutely love that. I love the fact that Jesus has saved me from my separation from God. I love the fact that he saved me from the prison of my self-centeredness, that there is a power within me in the Holy Spirit that has the opportunity to break the hold of self-centeredness has on my life and let me live into things that really, really are better than what I want for myself. I absolutely love all of that. I'm so, so grateful for Jesus' salvation for me. And so I really do, as, as, as Bill Mackey, I remembered yesterday, you know, just as he longed for Jesus to be in the presence of Jesus, I feel that same longing myself. So one of the best things I know is that Jesus is coming back to save his people from living in a world that is hostile to what they love the most. He's coming back to rule in righteousness. He's coming back to be the leader that all of us long for. There's no human leader that will ever satisfy our longing for great leadership until Jesus shows up. He's going to show up. He's going to rule in righteousness, and he's going to begin something new. He's going to begin this process that's going to usher in a perfect heaven and a perfect earth that will be perfect forever. That's why I'm eagerly awaiting for him. I'm really, really looking forward to him coming back. Okay? But if you're not, if you're not eagerly awaiting for Jesus, I hope you hear this. I really do love you, and I hope you hear this from a place of love for me. Uh, that's the thing that's the most important thing for you to put front and center in your life right now. If you're trying to live a life independent from God that doesn't want to think about Jesus, doesn't want to expect his return, you're in a place where you're facing the greatest danger of your life, which is an eternity separated from God. Now, I'm going to just ask you as a friend and out of love for you that you really go honestly after that and you, take, you, 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 you really wrestle this down in your own heart. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to acknowledge he came out of love for you to save you, to do for you what you cannot do yourself? Are you going to be willing to accept his offer of forgiveness for your sins? Or are you going to keep pushing him away and rejecting him and doing your own thing at the cost of your, your soul for eternity? I don't want that for anybody. And in fact, what I want for everybody is the greatest thing I've ever experienced which is the cleansing and the purification of my heart before God, the, the ability for me to enter into the kind of new relationship with God that God has for us based on Jesus' righteousness and not my own. I want that for everybody. So let me, let me pray for all of us with that. Lord Jesus, we, we bow before you and acknowledge that the sacrifices you have made for us are greater than we can understand. Just even, I've been, I've been so... I feel so inadequate to try to express this with the words I have. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm just asking that you will give us the gifts of humility and gratitude that are appropriate to the sacrifice Jesus has made for us that's just bigger than we can understand. And I, too, pray that you will grow in us enormous confidence in the love of God, which is the reason why this sacrifice was made. Jesus, help us to, to be overwhelmed by your love for us, which motivated you to pay the price for us. Holy Spirit, give us a clearer picture of both our sinfulness and Jesus' salvation and Jesus' love. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.